Hello, and welcome to the Take Us Directed podcast, produced by the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. My name is Beth Cameron. I'm the Vice President of Global Biological Policy and Programs at the Nuclear Threat Initiative, and I am delighted to serve as your guest host for today's episode. The world of global health security has been amassed in headlines over the past few weeks, from the Ebola outbreak in the Congo to the elimination of the Global Health Security Directorate within the White House National Security Council staff. For this episode, we turn to two global health experts with substantial experience on the front lines of epidemic preparedness and response. Dr. Amadou Saul is the CEO of Pasteur Institute in Dakar, Senegal, and Dr. Andrew Katua is the Africa Regional Director of USAID Preparedness and Response Project. Amadou and Andrew, thank you for taking the time to sit down with me today to offer your insights into the challenges and opportunities we face in preparing ourselves globally for the next pandemic threat. Thanks for having us. Thank you. We find ourselves right now with another Ebola outbreak, this time in the Democratic Republic of Congo and very close to the Congo River. Peter Salama from the WHO last week said, it's going to be tough and it's going to be costly to stamp out this outbreak. Starting with Amadou, could you each begin just by telling our listeners a little bit about your work, your perspective on preparedness, why these programs are so important in global health security, and maybe what your views are about the toughest challenges that we face? So thank you. Um, about my work, what I can say that I'm trained as a virologist and molecular biology, and I also did some education in uh, public health. And I spent the last 25 years dealing with research, education, and public health, mostly epidemic and investigations uh, in the field of arbovirus and hemorrhagic fevers. Um, over this period, what I've done was to be able to support through the WHO Collaborating Center I'm leading uh, about 35 countries in Africa, uh, a lot of education throughout the world, and also actually being able to do uh, research on mostly diagnostics and understanding how the virus are transmitted. Great. Andrew, how about you? What is your perspective on the global preparedness challenges we face from your work? From my work, I am very much uh, encouraged. We are not there, but I'm encouraged uh, because my work uh, involves working with countries, supporting the countries to establish one health coordination mechanism at country level. That means mechanisms that involve multi-sectors, health sector, uh, agriculture sector, veterinary sector, wildlife, and the environment, and beyond, including finance, and uh, the military. Through this work in countries, we have been able to work with them to prepare their plans for preparedness and response in, in case of outbreaks and support them uh, develop strategic plans which look at the na national priorities and target also their evaluation of the uh, joint uh, external evaluation, uh, which they did, and the gaps. And we've been able to work with these countries now to use that to actually address some of the outbreaks that are taking place in the countries. And I'm happy that some countries are showing signs, so there are signs, but we are far from reaching there. Did you want to comment on this, Amadou? Yes, on the preparedness process, I think uh, it's very important for me to understand that preparedness is more a process than really an objective. In this regard, when I say process, is that this is something that is ongoing. 
And we need really to have that in mind. Uh, this is critically important because when we say process, then we have to think economically how we set up that. And from the implementation point of view, this is one of the toughest challenge because ongoing, it need to have some sustainability. And when we say implementation, the country ownership is critically important. The coordination is critically important because we have many actors. So if there is no careful coordination, the result may be not so good. And talking about global health, I think a friend of mine keep talking about uh, science without engineer is a philosophy and global health without community is also philosophy. Uh, because I believe whatever we do and don't get it centered into the community would not be very successful. And I think this is a very, very important challenge because it goes through cultural issues, it goes through economic issues, and from a humanitarian point of view, it can be extremely important. The second major challenge I see is really financial challenge. Uh, today, I mean, through the IHR system, we want to join external evaluation. After joint external evaluation, the country has been asked to come with national plans, some of them very expensive. And one of the challenges really to fund that, given that this is important, this is a commitment at the highest level, and this is a tough challenge. So I'd like to follow that up by asking uh, first you, Amadou, and then please, Andrew, I, I love your comments on this as well. You both are speaking about the need for countries to take ownership at the community level for preparedness, but also bringing in the very real challenge that there are so many gaps and um, we need continued leadership from, from both um, countries as well as uh, the international donors, foundations, and development banks. I wonder how can we keep this issue of global health security on the minds of heads of state and other leaders during peacetime when there's not a major worldwide epidemic or pandemic. We know that many countries, including the G7, have made historic commitments to help many countries implement the international health regulations. But what's the mechanism for accounting for those uh, commitments and for accountability? And how do we balance that with, um, with what countries themselves uh, need to take ownership of? Yes, I think it's, it's very interesting, these accounting uh, questions. Uh, because the accountability of those countries, which are not necessarily directly impacted, uh, is mostly based on interaction at the global level and the position as very powerful country. So even though they have to be accountable about their commitments, one can understand that the affected countries have much higher uh, commitment to do in this regard. And that's where I think it's critically important that the different country understand that. And why this is important uh, is that because on a long term, we want some sustainability. And we can't imagine having permanent support and help because at the end of the day, the different priorities are competing at the international level. So the local ownership is important. And in this regard, it's also, I think, very important that to, to make all these nations, particularly the richest one, aware of the fact that preparing is a good investment. And if you take the example of Ebola, the last Ebola was $7 billion, uh, actually, in terms of costs. Why experts show that with a tenth of that invest in preparedness, we could have avoided such a kind of problem. So this economic approach is something, I think, on which it's important to make people aware of that. The second important aspect I, I want to say is sometimes 
the head of states and the decision makers at this level are not really aware of the impact of some problem. I just want to take the example of yellow fever. Uh, yellow fever production exists today in a very few countries. There is four producers in the world. And in 2016... You mean the vaccine? The vaccine. There is just one producer in Africa and one producer in Southern America. And the problem is the world is in a shortage of vaccine every time, like 40 million shortage every year. So in 2016, 15 and 16, there were a major outbreak in Angola where 11 Chinese went to China. And we had to have an emergency committee. And while discussing that, we realized at the world level, there were just 17 million doses available and more than 500 million Chinese to protect. And this is the sort of things that can make us in a situation very complicated because they are not aware. I'm sure if they are aware sometime, this challenge can be taken. So for me, increasing awareness is number one priority and insisting also on the economic costs. Ebola has cost some point of growth in, in all the country that has been affected. No, I think the economic argument is critical. And I remember very well um, the, the, the Angola outbreak and the questions that I was asked about how, how is it that there are so many, only so many vaccine producers in the world for this vaccine. Andrew, from your perspective, how can we keep this this issue top of mind? And, and also, what kinds of arguments do you think are most effective to make sure that this is maintained as a high priority, even when we're not in the middle of an epidemic? Right. Uh, to me, and with my experience now, uh, first as an initiator of the East African Integrated Disease Surveillance Network in East Africa, which I had a Rockefeller Foundation grant, and I developed it, established it under the National Institute for Medical Research, but we institutionalized it in the East African community. Uh, with that experience and with the experience of the current my current work, I have come to realize that uh, seeing is believing. So when we have good coordination mechanisms in countries, when countries are able to prevent and control outbreaks at source, they themselves realize how less costly it is compared to when they have outbreaks. The neighboring also see that how the neighbor has been able to control because they have uh, announced that they had an outbreak, but it never went anywhere. And it creates a sense of confidence within the region. Panic goes away. Before, when there was an outbreak in Uganda, many East African countries banned uh, importation of poultry when there was the first avian influenza in Uganda. They banned unilaterally. But now, uh, in the last, there were regional discussions and regional policies, and it was more friendly because they are confident Uganda can control it. So building these capacities getting the countries to own these capacities and actually working with them now to mitigate those issues at source is critical. And one idea is to change our mentality at country level, at regional level, and at global level to put more investment in prevention. We are tending always to wait until there is an outbreak. That's when we react. When we talk about preparedness, we talk about preparing for the outbreak. 
waiting for the outbreak to come. We amass our, but we don't talk about the routine work, surveillance, uh, risk uh, identification that is required on the continuous process so that we don't arrive at that situation. So when we have examples of countries that are able to do that, the others learn. And it's very important to, therefore, uh, the global community to involve the regional communities. We have regional economic communities, and they very well understand what outbreaks do to their economies. So they must now be involved critically, strongly, to mitigate those uh, outbreaks and by in, in the process or the way to mitigate those uh, outbreaks is by working with countries, with the global community, to support countries in their regions to reach that level of capacity to be able to prevent, detect, and control outbreaks at source. So one thing that you brought up that I just want to pull a little bit on is the idea of regional engagement. And I wonder if if you either of you have ideas about how to do some of the work that's been very successfully done in the East African community, which is a very strong regional network. How can you take that idea, that mentality, and move it into other regions? And, and how do you affect regions where there's more challenges working together? I think, as uh, my colleague mentioned, the, the, the advocacy. The East African in 2014, influenced by the networks in East Africa, uh, in a meeting of ministers, the interministerial meeting of East African community in Zanzibar, they accepted to pass a decree that all the East African countries must institutionalize one health approach in their systems. That level of commitment, once the community has committed to that level, then countries follow suit and it's easy to work with the countries. So I think the other regions have the similar organizations. I know in West Africa, and actually West Africa has been working towards a creating network uh, for integrated disease surveillance. So strong advocacy with those and showing them the examples of then the successful region will make them accept the idea because it's, it's, it's a, a very uh, important idea and it shows how we may benefit to prevent uh, major catastrophes, major economic uh, suffering in our regions. Uh, for example, the East African community, after last year's avian influenza outbreak in Uganda, after the Uganda had controlled it, the East African community mobilized the regional partners to a meeting in Uganda to do an after-action review to learn from Uganda what had happened. So I'm, I believe that with the support of global organizations, WHO, OIE, the World Bank, we can actually work with the region communities, uh, inform them with examples where it works, why they have to invest in prevention and why they have to participate more in preparedness and response. I like the idea of working through the regional disease surveillance networks. Um, we've we've also uh, supported those, and I think they can be a really good good mechanism. Switching gears just a little bit, um, we've been talking a, a lot about stopping outbreaks at the source. 
The Smithsonian is launching a new exhibit on outbreaks um, right now in light of the 100-year anniversary of the 1918 influenza pandemic, which may have killed more people than World War I. How prepared, Amadou, are we for a fast-moving influenza-type outbreak, for something that it's very a little more challenging, perhaps, to, to stop at the source? And what more can governments in the private sector do now, including through preparedness programs, to mitigate that risk? I think in the field of preparations, uh, probably I would say we are like halfway uh, in, in the capacities. When I say we are halfway, as I said earlier, this is a process. And when I say it's also halfway, it's important to understand that we are never ready, actually, as long as there is some opportunity that is not or gap that is not completely actually either seized or fulfilled. Now, if I talk about flu, the system that exists today at the global level, whether it's in terms of surveillance or in terms of making vaccine every year, I think the work done over this year is really remarkable. But the way the flu works uh, is something that's really unpredictable. It can come from a very tiny countries or it can come from a big country. It can something that everybody would expect and it would come completely different. The nature of uncertainty around this flu uh, at the technical, political and economic level make it so difficult that I, I would say really, if I want to be optimistic, that's we are really doing great. If I want to be pessimistic, it would be more like uh, we are in really trouble not being able to do vaccine as quickly as we are supposed to do. But really the realistic approach would be to say, okay, I think uh, the process is in end. We learn a lot from other opportunities like uh, Ebola and the framework which is being built with international health regulation, the joint evaluations, all these different funds that is available to support the preparedness of uh, influenza pandemic, uh, pandemic preparedness uh, influenza initiative is something that works quite nicely. I think we have a nice framework, really, if I want to be realistic but still work to do because flu is something unpredictable. Now, in terms of government and private sector, definitely we should have a much better partnership because if we can get to good vaccines, which exist uh, where the know-how is in private sectors, and I just want to mention here an initiative like CEPI, which is really bringing... The actually, Coalition for Epidemics Preparedness Innovation? CEPI. Yes, CEPI is really bringing together manufacturer from private sectors and getting funding from foundation and some government, putting them together to say, okay, on these emerging infectious diseases, we need to find a solution. And really the know-how is in the private sectors. And unless we incentivize the private sector, and that's where the government can play an important role, they may not, in terms of market, find really relevant to invest in those vaccines that may have a huge impact. So when it comes to flu also, you can see through this partnership, there are a lot of discussion right now about the universal flu vaccines. And this is typically the sort of subjects that uh, can solve the problem in the long run. And for that, we need minds from both areas, the ones that are doing the regulations, the ones that are doing the, in uh, uh, the incentive to the market, uh, with the people that really have the know-how. And I think this cooperation and partnership, public-private, is probably a key to the situation in terms of preparedness. Andrew, I wonder if um, thinking about fast-moving uh, epidemic threats, thinking about how the world is changing um, and how much it's changed since 1918, um, we know that we're in a world of increasing disorder. We also know um, that we have conflict, fragile and weak states. 
And also um, thinking a little bit about an exercise that I had the ability to, to watch earlier this week called Clade X. It was a Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security exercise that, that focused on a bioengineered pathogen, and it was actually an intentional release. And it, it just thinking about um, where it happened in the world and the fact that it was unexpected um, just made many people who watched it think, how are we prepared for unusual events? And how prepared are we in places in the world where we already have an increasing amount of disorder? And, and how might we address those kinds of concerns, either through preparedness programs or through work between governments and international organizations? What are your thoughts on this? When it comes to uh, areas with conflicts and whatnot, I think we are not doing very well. We are not doing well. We, and these are areas where we are always having problems because conflicts and wars and whatnot breed the fertile ground for pathogens uh, to, 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 to grow, to transmit easily, uh, but also for uh, uh, the development incentive for those who wish to develop um, biological uh, um, warfares and such things to do so. So it's not uh, we are not doing uh, very well, and the uh, the problem can be solved if we work, as I mentioned, to get as many countries as possible better coordinated, better organized to be able to address the prevention, detection, and controlling outbreaks at source. And then work with the regional organizations to incentivize them to really work to uh, resolve conflicts in their regions. There are regional organizations, and these are conflicts affect the neighbors. Always there is effect on the neighbor and whatnot. So how can we work better with these regional organizations to take real good action proactive in mitigating conflicts within their regions. We don't need wars. We can have disagreements, but these disagreements can be put on the table and we can discuss and solve them. And if we can show them what war does instead and make them understand that better conflict uh, resolution helps better and saves us a lot of economic hardship and social hardship, maybe they will react. If there is disorder, then that is the best ground for pandemics. As far as we are working technically uh, to look at preparedness and response for uh, epidemics and pandemics, I think we should also introduce discussions of preventing wars, preventing conflicts in the region. And I think it's also interesting to think about uh, how a pandemic threat or an epidemic could also uh, cause potentially um, a conflict or weakness in the political system. I know that was a big concern in West Africa, and we were fortunate that the three countries there were able to work well together and really um, hold together, and also we were fortunate to have uh, good leaders in that region. Um, I wonder... Just as a final comment from both of you before we close, um, looking forward, looking at initiatives like the Global Health Security Agenda, looking at um, the upcoming G7, the G20, the World Health Assembly, um, starting with Amadou, wh what really would you like to see top of mind going forward for leaders in this field? What would you like to say to them? 
I think there is three things that I think critical uh, for them probably to pay more attention that has been done in this first part. One is really having a very good coordinations at the national level and at the regional level. Obviously, Global Health Security Agenda has been implemented at country level, but I think most of the problem, as mentioned earlier by Andrew, have the solution at the regional level. So this part, to me, has not been emphasized enough, and it would be good that we take that into account. And at the national level, in some countries like Senegal, it has been actually handled at the prime minister level, which guarantees some intersectoriality and cooperation. So I think this coordination in the mechanism is something that really people need to emphasize. The second important aspect that can have huge impact is probably surveillance. Uh, because if you look today, WHO clearly is facing 80% of the problem, is facing, is really in uh, in 30 countries altogether. And meaning that if you do surveillance well in those areas, then we can probably easily take care of those things. And in this regard, surveillance for me is a top priority. Up to now, it's not existing to a level which is good. And this is a serious issue. And the last part would be actually vaccination and immunizations. Uh, today, we're talking about DRC. Uh, we're deploying Ebola vaccine. And in the area where we're having Ebola vaccine, 40% of the kids, 40, one, four, of the kids are still dying of preventable disease with vaccine. So getting the vaccine to the people can help a lot to build, uh, I mean, some and avoid we have epidemics for things that are really, uh, we have tools to get them under control. So these three areas, I think, is important to reinforce. Those are great points. Andrew, I wonder if you could comment on the same. Yes, I would add uh, and emphasize the issue of prevention, uh, that the global community understands that we need really to invest in prevention and we need to put our resources in a position that helps countries and regions to be able to access support to continuously con uh, conduct preventive activities, uh, health system strengthening, uh, it has been mentioned, surveillance, laboratories uh, strengthening, field epidemiology strengthening in the regions. And currently, we do not have these systems. Uh, <clears throat> in, uh, at the global level, we have funds for emergency, but these funds are only released if you have an epidemic. So the, the, the culture of wait and react. We should be proactive to work in advance, to have advanced parties moving before uh, the epidemic happens. So I am really uh, pushing to suggest for uh, working with regional communities uh, and global communities to establish regional uh, health emergency prevention funds. These funds would be coordinated at regional level 
would be uh, put for calls like research calls are put, but this would target health system strengthening, surveillance strengthening and whatnot for the capacities that are there already in the region. We have universities, we have research institutions, we have networks for them to access. And we have also programs in, in ministries for these programs to access those funds in a multi-sectoral organized way to address priority issues uh, for prevention, detection, and controlling at source in their countries. If those funds were available, these teams would continuously work. It will incentivize the capacities build to remain and not move away. When there is something, they are moving, they are going away, they are looking for other opportunities elsewhere. And so you train, but the people are not there, not remaining there. So I would really push for that one. And at the global level, to broaden the global funds that are already available, not to be solely for uh, access, to be accessed during outbreaks, but also to establish this system that you can access them for preventive aspects in your countries, when especially countries that are at higher risk. So proactive approaches, proactive approach, regional yeah. engagement, focusing on, on prevention, but also making sure that we're prepared with those vaccines we need to exactly. respond, and then taking care to be looking at the broader health system while we're doing it. Well, it's a tall order, but I'm uh, extraordinarily um, proud that both of you are, are working on this issue and so glad to have been with you today. Thank you very Thank you. much for giving us the opportunity. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for today's episode of the Take Is Directed podcast featuring Dr. Amadou Sal of the Institute Pasteur in Dakar and Dr. Andrew Katua of the Preparedness and Response Project. Amadou and Andrew also joined us at CSIS as featured speakers in a public event focused around the current state of pandemic preparedness policy and practice. If you are unable to join us for that event or want to see it again, you can watch it on demand at the CSIS.org Global Health Policy Center program page, where you can also find more information on future CSIS events and recent publications. Thank you.